Welcome to Mindset, Mood and Movement, a systemic approach to human behavior, performance and well-being. Our psychological, emotional and physical health are all connected. And my guests and I endeavor to share knowledge, strategies and tools for you to enrich your life and work. Today, we're going to be tackling three specific things. How to save time, increase productivity and reduce stress at work. With my guest, Matt Patterson, we're going to be discussing these challenges and areas and how we might be able to work with them using Matt's worldview and principles and practices from design thinking, overlaid with some of my understandings from psychology and human behavior. Matt is a multi-passionate entrepreneur with a really eclectic career that's taken him from clinician to researcher, designer to filmmaker. He works tirelessly to design products and services that represent the lives and needs of everyday people across context and culture. He's very talented, he's a super guy, really looking forward to hearing some of the understandings from Design Thinking with Matt. So let's get into it. Matt, welcome. Good afternoon. Good to see you. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm very excited to have our conversation ahead. Matt, before we go into Design Thinking in more depth, for those of us who may not be so clear on what Design Thinking is, rather than it might be about graphics and pictures and so forth. Can you give us a bit of a, a bit of a, an elaboration of design thinking and perhaps its origins? For sure. Um, so design thinking is a group of tools and methods that are generally designed to be used by people who are non-designers as well as designers. And it's ways of understanding the needs of people and getting to the core of what a product or a service could be. Now, designers used to have these skills that they used themselves around discovery, around definition of concepts, around how you could turn them into things to test in the real world and products that you release. But IDEO, a design agency in America, one of the world's biggest, perhaps the biggest agency, started bringing this design thinking methodology to teach towards people across a whole range of different backgrounds and skills and professions to be designerly in their way of addressing how they solve problems in the world. And so for the last 10 or 15 years, it has been put out there to a really broad set of people. Now, I went into design myself, coming in via human factors as a researcher, effectively, not a designer. I'm not an industrial designer or a graphic designer or a brand designer, but I worked in teams, multidisciplinary teams, to tackle problems by understanding people. That's so interesting, isn't it? When we can take a description and make sure we elaborate on it and and also take a frame of thinking, what, what we would talk about in my perspective, a, a, a field of perception and overlay a, perhaps a different field of perception to tackle challenges, to learn, to process things differently. So that's really cool. When you, you mentioned IDEO, um, curious, where was the origin for you to get turned into uh, a very clever entrepreneur? I know you do lots of different things, which we will get into. Where did it start that you got into this principle of looking at the world and business through design thinking? So I'd spent my entire life questioning why and how and what, and why everything's designed the way it is. I realized as a clinician, I was a much better service designer that didn't really exist then than I was a clinician because I was looking at the world as ways, ways that I can prove for, for a far group, larger group of people than just the individual. It probably made me migrate towards doing community care where I was looking at people struggling to live their everyday lives with disease, but in the wider communities of London and how you could build services to support people and connect them more effectively. Actually, I came across IDEO, I stumbled across IDEO because uh, on a coffee break at work, I worked in North London, I came across, I used to walk around, look at bookshops if I had a bit of time, and I came across this book called The Masters of Innovation, which was by IDEO. And it 
talked about how they used human-centered design and design thinking and human-centered processes to determine what products and services should be. And I was amazed by this book. I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to take my skills of understanding people from psychology to sociology and the backgrounds of physiotherapists is all the anatomical and physiological know-how and apply it to the design of things that affected the entire world. So by chance, their agency, of which they have them all over the world, one was literally a quarter of a mile away. So I virtually went and knocked on the door, connected with people, and they said, look, with your background, you'd be perfect to go into design if you wanted to do so going in via human factors, ergonomics to many people. And so via a master's degree, that's exactly what I did. I went into that world and it opened up my sort of fields of view as to how everything in the world is designed from things going in for food packaging, things coming out of intensive care at the other end of the system and everything in between. And I went on this long journey inspired by that very early nugget of IDEO's inspiration on a book that they'd published. So interesting, isn't it? And it shows you the power of the transfer of knowledge and the transfer of something new. I, I, first, I, I love that. I'm a, a big uh, reader. I'm always learning. Isn't it fascinating that one book, one set of principles was, was a pivot point for you to, to see the world differently. And I find that really interesting, certainly from the world that I look at, is that it's largely, not fully, but largely perception that shapes what we do, how we act, the challenges that we have, and, and how we face them. I'm curious because, you, of course, you've told me a little bit about your backstory, working with people, physio, uh, teams. And now I know you're into healthcare in, in a big way and you've been working with this in, in many forms. Could you share a little bit more about how design thinking goes into healthcare and perhaps just linking towards one of the big challenges that we're all facing, which is how can we save time? How can we start to think about time and, and how, how does that happen? Well, the critical elements about understanding how you design things is that the principles of design thinking and designing for people is you understand their everyday lives, right? So you go and do what is called ethnographic research or observational research and hang out with people to see what they do and what they don't do as much, see what they don't say, what they don't tell you and what they don't do to try and see where the opportunities are to build better products or services. In healthcare, this is super critical because as you can imagine, lots of little elements join things together as to how one manages one's life that can either end well uh, in health, it can end in stress, it can end in dis-ease uh, or disease. Uh, and all of those factors are important for companies trying to build products to fit into people's lives to make them live better, uh, have better outcomes. And so in healthcare, human factors, design research, design thinking have all been very heavily embedded into that process. Now, when I first went into design, I had a Nokia 3310, right? A blue phone that didn't do much else. And I remember when I was at university doing my human factors degree, I wrote a paper that got published around um, aging and accessibility and mobile phone design for the older adult populations around the world. Little was I to know that five years later, I'd be in the offices of Nokia having a responsibility for taking their design teams around the world, listening to those conversations about what happens when the iPhone comes and changes a phone into a computer. So it's a lot has changed in 20 years in terms of our acceleration, in terms of our consumption abilities, in terms of how we interact in our everyday. Part of the question is time, right? Time has been compressed. Our expectations and boundaries have gone in relation to work. We're far away from in the industrial revolution where we're doing 
clocking in nine to five or when Henry Ford came in to tell us about we need a weekend so he could sell his cars to justify driving somewhere. There's often an industrial design element to the shifts and change we've seen. I think I even believe that in LA, we used to have lots of trams that were very popular in LA before General Motors got all the trams effectively abolished uh, and the highways built and the cities built outside of the bounds so we could drive in and out of work to justify the automotive industry in a number of ways. So those things all tie closely together. Where does that mean for healthcare? I see this big meta system of everything interlinked with how we build societies and how we support them with services and products and systems. Uh, And it's hard to unpick those, but the design industry and design thinking and the approaches we do when working with clients have to take into consideration all those different lenses as to how you build products and services that we now take for granted. I almost feel there's a bit of a dark side to design there because, of course, if if it's um, shaped in such a way to, let's say, sell more cars, then, of course, that's the outcome. And it might be a very effective outcome. But I think if we pan out and perhaps pan into the world we live in now where there's impact from you know, environmental challenges, social challenges, health challenges, Nothing works in isolation. It, it's something that I see in, in the work that I do with human behavior and human performance. Nothing works in isolation. So in terms of design, how are you looking at things now about a more of a systemic view? For instance, where you look at one thing, perhaps a person and their business and their structure, and then how that's going to affect them, perhaps revenue-wise, time-wise, health-wise. How, do, how do, can you bring a design thinking principle to that more systemic approach? Well, things have moved Greatly, since I went into design in 2003, 4, 5, everything was about being human-centred in design. Uh, and now there's a lot of questions challenging whether human-centredness is the best for ourselves. Certainly, is it the best for the planet? And therefore, is that the best for ourselves? How do we consume? Back in those days, it was pre... We were talking about globalisation. There was talk about the brick economies being important. And now, 15 years on, we have a massively evolving huge consumer global mindset around the world that is basically developing and evolving, which is consuming far, far more things. Even takes me back to when I was responsible for Nokia, taking these teams into China and Korea and to understand people's everyday lives around what phones were. We, we Because they had the economic uh, power back then in the West compared even to China, our, our local guide was a professor of sociology and psychology and an advertising executive who taught advertising at universities and she was our translator. Teresa was a super talented lady. And just after this, she sent me through a video, a very prophetic video, which one of her students had made, which was a lot of people walking around in China, staring at their phones, not looking at each other. And this was 2008, just before smartphones had really taken a grip in relation to our expectations. We're still looking at phones as phones, not computers. Everything is, everything is going on this acceleration. So how does that change how we are today in terms of our expectation of designers to design products that are sustainable? Colleagues of mine back in 2010 were talking about circular economy and around sustainability, and it was very much a nice perspective, but not something that was central to business models. And so we zoom forward 10, 12 years, 13 years, and now the conversations are moving towards regenerative and emergent design. So things that consider kind of donut economics, things that are built in ways to be 
evolutionary in ensuring that what's out there learns from nature, builds for nature, regenerates in nature. Now, it would be very unrealistic to say that the commercial and capitalist world that we live in today are producing for those desires. But the minds of the desires of the people who are connected around the world are making the shift towards this new space, which is design delivered differently. And I think that that's a really interesting nascent space because who knows whether it will get there. It certainly seems to clash with many of the old ideologies with sustainability being on a journey towards being regenerative. Who knows who will win? Certainly things that have been talked about far more than we were seeing even five, ten years ago. That makes me think of uh, uh, there's many branches of science and study, and one of them I've been looking at recently is biosemiotics, which um, those of you, if you're into biosemiotics, forgive me if I don't quite do it justice. But essentially, it's, a, it's looking at things and saying, well, most living systems have um, a quality of affect, which is feeling, and meaning. Now, humans, we are, you know, fundamentally, we are affect regulated. So we're emotion, emotionally driven. Those of you who know my work, a lot of my work is around dealing with the, the emotional mood side because how we feel really drives what we do in so many respects, whether that's stress, happiness, peace of mind, all the kind of challenges, those, those emotive things. And this biosemiotics view is to look at things and consider things have a meaning, inherent meaning, and there's a feeling connected to it. So when we go about our days, whether it's an individual or an organization, and we're designing things, I'm wondering if it's important to hold that view now about everything has some inherent meaning and some inherent feeling. I mean, I, I don't know anyone that's fairly successful that doesn't feel good about it. And if they are successful and they don't feel good, <laughs> they don't tell me they're actually successful. Mm. So with that in mind, effects, which are feelings, things that matter, and our our current need to perhaps work in a different way, as, as you've already alluded to, how can we bring a design approach to encompass that? Well, it's really interesting. In semiotics, thinking semiotics and semioticians work in the design world. And they're, they, I was to work very closely with some semioticians, and they describe themselves a little bit like Dan Brown's Da Vinci code, looking for the codes in meaning of the things and the signs that we see around ourselves. So the things they'd show me would be a a pharmaceutical packaging piece which would say omelette on it. So you'd look at it and think the codes, oh, that just looks like it's a drug, but it would say omelette. Oh. And it would be like this juxtaposition of like, what does that mean? And I've often looked at, especially the language that influences how we talk about things in design and what they mean and where that's taking us in the world. A couple of examples, and the big meta conversation here for me is designers are saying, whoa, what have we done to the world? What have we put out there in the world? we should slow down. For example, infinity pool apps that we have on our phone where we constantly scroll that just take attention because the attention economy is what we're looking to drive for because we've got an advertising model that underpins most of the big tech companies and your eyeballs on their stuff is what matters. So those have been designed with designers at the heart of those things like the like button to be positive deliveries to the technological world that often somehow find themselves a bit skewed. And some of these designers who've, uh, I think of the guys who wrote Sprint, designed Sprints, uh, so Jake Knapp and his team, the concept of Sprint, right? Design Sprint, let's sprint somewhere, let's accelerate, let's do things faster. So let's, in Design Sprints, and I've run lots of Design Sprints, you're looking at observing, you're looking at mapping, you're looking at creating, and instead of doing it over months that we used to do it with, you're doing it in a week. And these things, having run them, are very stressful, they're very hard work, they're high performance, and they have 
a lighter level output, but much quicker. And then look at Wired magazine. What does Wired say to you? If you're wired, you're not chilled, you're not relaxed, are you? There's this energy, there's this buzz. When I started looking through Wired magazine, sort of semiotically, and it's advertisers are watches and their luggage, and they're for going somewhere else to another time away from where you are now. So the opportunity of the future of innovations, and these are the good old days, but this is they're not. The future promises. So in terms of a lot of this language that influences designers, is this acceleration towards tomorrow. And I think that we've learned that we've created issues there in terms of one's experience of affect for oneself in relation to how we utilise time. So all these things of acceleration, the, the eyes down advertising of the of the smartphones in China, the the industrial time scales changed to the modern day time scales where everything is now available on a mobile phone. So there's no boundaries in terms of email and there's a strong correlation between email and stress and, uh, and anxiety. And then the fact that we don't work in offices where you clock in and clock out, they're all sort of clubbing together under this guise of we can accelerate to better. And I question whether that's true. I would second that. One of the biggest problems I see with people coming into my, my practice is that something's not working. There's anxiety, there is stress, there's overwhelm, exhaustion a lot of the time. And generally, you know, when I question a founder or a business owner and say, you know, are you on point? Is, is this what you want? And of course, the answer is generally no. I want to feel different. I want to feel good. And that's okay. And you're bang on something here, Matt. I think it's kind of, um, it's like the proverbial fish in water. We just can't see this, this, this thing around us that we're always chasing something. It's a very human thing, isn't it? To chase that, that, that idea, that future thing. I call it horizon chasing because of course you can never catch it, but it's very, very seductive. The problem with that is who's in control? Whose terms are these? Are you, you know, are we working by our own terms and our own volition? Or is it some kind of cultural um, juggernaut that we're whizzing along that's going to have a bit, bit, of a, bit of a bump soon? Absolutely. The, and the guys from behind the design sprints and then their second book, Make Time, right? Here are some of the things they talk about doing. Designing your day, just saying no, deleting apps off your phone, getting rid of infinity pools, only using your phone as a tool, right? Old Nokia 3310 phone, uh, creating space, clearing your home screen, skipping the morning check-in, uh, cancelling uh, email time, so having email time at only time of day and sleeping in a cave. Everything that they've worked in and around in San Francisco and Silicon Valley and all the, there's a very much a northern hemispheric control of the of the world, right? And, it, and it's very heavily located in the likes of San Francisco and, and New York and then uh, a bit in London, a bit in Japan, those things too. But if you look at Silicon Valley and San Francisco as the epicentre of technology for the world, a lot of the individuals who've created these kind of paradigms to enable us to be freer, they've actually seen the traps of the things that they've created in and of themselves, and they're trying in many ways to shut them down. It's just very difficult because they've been designed to be very addictive and very accessible. Look, we're here today doing this from two different locations on an amazing new thing, which is Riverside, and, and we've used technology to enable to connect us and to use, do amazing things. But there's always a there's always the flip side, and I find it generally in my life, I always flip into. I think maybe that's the role of a of a human centered human human focused designer, 
is looking at what's the what are the, what are the downsides and the upsides of every decision that you make, and what does that mean, especially if you're going to roll something out at scale to the world. What does that mean to the world? And it's never all good. It's never black mirror or white mirror. It's sort of grey mirror. It's yeah, very interesting to not see the world in a black and white or um, binary, if you want to use that term, perspective, because that's very much a, a Western paradigm of thinking. It, it's something I see a lot. One of my old masters used to talk about both and thinking, which is a really uh, quite a powerful state, very paradoxical. And often our cognitive mind can't hold such as, let's say you're designing your day and you are going to cut out some meetings and you're going to be more uh, in deep focus. But part of you wants to, oh, I want to get lots of stuff done. I want... You can't have both. But both and think you would hold that paradox and say, well, how can you have a different output? And you can hold that in a different way. Both and thinking is a really different way of looking at the world. And I think it comes back to the human-centric point of view you're saying, which is very much feeling-led. It's very emotive-led. It's like, how do you feel about something? And I wonder if design thinking can be tied to our, our emotive state our intuitive state, so to speak, rather than the thought-led state. I've certainly found with my work, I guess like the guys from Sprint and Google Ventures, that I've gone from this state of assuming better by creating next to looking inwards at oneself and designing, like slow the fork down, for example, like the things that work I've been doing in relation to being a slow coach, so to speak, which is the exact antithesis of who I am. I've done the 100-hour weeks, flying every week around the world, running design research, running a team like P.T. Barnum, spinning the plates, running the circus, running on cortisol, uh, expecting that this is the only thing that matters. It's so, so it's totally soaked up into these design projects that actually many of them, because of their front-end innovation, sort of right at the front end of the sort of ideascape, a lot of them don't get to the world in the same way that you... Uh, project them to be so it's not always that all this work that you do actually lands it lands in different ways it educates people it helps people and so things like slow the fork down are definitely me reflecting on my weaknesses i guess as a as a leader and my mindlessness in relation to taking care of myself behind work and i think we so often put work ahead of a kind of balanced flow of ourselves and stressor management and all those things. And I think as I age, I'm coming up to 50 in a week's time, so it's a bit of a transitional period. <laughs> I, I think our role is to re-educate and to help others build better systems with boundaries and help people see and become more aware. I often say to clients, what I do is I help them make the invisible visible. And I think we often do that for other people, but sometimes not for ourselves. But now my focus is learning on how we can do that for ourselves and put support systems in, because after all, I am an ergonomist, I'm a job designer, I am a creator in that space, but a kind of next generation ergonomics, something that has more sensitivity to some of the downsides that we put into place through technology. I'm so curious about the difference that we, we often have in our culture, which is around cognitive or analyticism, often more widely used term, being a highly prized skill. And it's been around since, again, the scientific revolution that, you know, if you can think clever stuff, you are more evolved. And but there's many styles of intelligence. And what I see in individuals, certainly super stressed leaders, is that there's a disconnect 
there's a disconnect from their thinking self to their feeling self, or very much a disconnect from the head to the body. People literally don't know what's happening in their viscera, their interoception is, mm-hmm. is null and void, because there's so much noise in the head. And one of the big things I, I come across, and I really want to get your view on this, is how to steady that cognitive load, how to bring things down in, in one's mind so you're not burning out, you're not living on stress and adrenaline. And that actually, if you're doing work, it's, it's really good stuff. It's really passionate and it's making a, a good difference in the world. How might your understanding of design come at that challenge about being too cognitive and, and less in tune with your, let's say, much more human state of being centered and being really present with with what you feel? One of the things I put out there is like a free 28-day design thinking course. And that's to help people start to get uh, access to some design thinking methodologies. And I do that very definitely in four different ways. One's to do a kind of like an observational challenge. I call it the coffee shop challenge. Then there's to apply some of the learnings from that to one's workplace, to one's work and what they're delivering, and then to oneself to redesign yourself, to redesign your day, to redesign the things that matter to you. So some of the methods that we would use to look at what's good to design a service, we can actually reflect those back on ourselves. And thinking about this conversation today, I maybe think, well, could you also do business model generation, looking at the business model canvas for yourself? Yeah, you could say, what's your value proposition? What are your key responsibilities? Who are your key partners? What are the costs in your life? What are the opportunities and the revenue in your life? What are the channels you're going to go by? And actually applying some of these mechanisms that you think are only useful to, and I'll give some of the uh, references to this we can put in the show notes, but that you think are only useful in business, actually reflect and give us very good ways to judge, well, what's the risk and what's the reward? What are we doing? What are we, aim to, what are we trying to do? Who are we trying to do it for? And then why are we trying to do those things? There's a secondary book on that, which is the Value Proposition Design book, which you could apply in exactly the same way. What are the gains? What are the creators? And what are the losses that you're trying to get rid of? Designers thought in great detail about how you can make repeatable processes to apply to challenges. So you start getting good skill sets to look at challenges, not as a very much as a stimulus response, but in a deep way, and often in a creative way, with laughter and with smiling and creating leaps that join towards the what-ifs, the things that could happen, probably won't happen, but they give you this capability to have range, I think. And having range and perspective stops you being cortisol and narrow and fight or flight or zoomed in and maybe enables you to be oxytocin and dopamine and relaxed and connective and, and, and soft eyes. And I think we... Perhaps as the great acceleration pushes us to faster and faster and faster, we lose those soft eyes. A lot of the work in design is around things now they say, well, jobs to be done. What is it? As long as you're achieving and focusing on jobs to be done, that's far more resourceful. And I think we may come back to realize that actually that might be good for making processes that we know quicker, better, but it's probably not good for imagining what a better process in the first place could be. And I, and I think, and I, people I work with, I'm, we're often working in projects that are improving their work life. But in essence, what you see is the largest impacts. I think if people, if I were to ask people what the biggest impacts I've had, they'd probably say, well, individually on me within my work, you've enabled me to see things differently. And I think that's, so it's not really about the product or the service, even though that's what's sort of paying for it more often than not. 
feels like it's more about the perception and the origin to me. Like, where are you coming from? I, I remember a coach uh, saying that goals are great, but they're not that good. Because <laughs> a lot of coaching is very much about where we're going. And he would yes. always say, like, where are you coming from? And it's an analogy I, I sometimes like to dial in myself. Like, where's your compass? How do you know where you're going if you don't have a compass? You, you don't have a measurement. And chasing stuff for some arbitrary reason, more money, more success, scaling a business. If, if, you, we, if we don't ask why, then I think we're into a really deep hole here. Because the funny thing about acceleration is you can't change time. We can't actually bend 24 hours. I've not met anyone who drives a DeLorean that goes back in time yet. So no one can change time. And I think it's Heidegger, Martin Heidegger said a very provocative statement, which is, we are time. So when the human system, certainly the, the, the mind systems in stress, overload, function, very limited thinking, very reactionary thinking, that's pretty unhelpful. Certainly if you're in quite a, a, an important position as leader or running a business, that you're, you're coming at it from an emergency state, a stress state, a reactive state, rather than, as you say, a soft eye, wide perspective, seeing the impact on a wider scale state. So perception seems to be one of the fundamental shifts that design thinking can really help any of us that we can apply and overlay into our own practices and work, which is fascinating. In terms of productivity, again, isn't it uh, an absolute... I haven't met anyone who doesn't want more time, more productivity, and less stress. <laughs> They're three always for sale and everybody wants them. Productivity is a curious thing though, because I find productivity, certainly some of the places I've been working with this, is often linked to a perception of how well someone's doing. And there, of course, is some metrics to this. You know, if you're producing more stuff, you might be earning more money and that's great. But if you're producing more in your business and your output, and yet you're not getting enough human satisfaction, I question the validity of that productivity. So I'm wondering if I can get your perception on how productivity could be perhaps increased without, I guess, a loss of that human-centric place. Yeah, I think the evidence on productivity in large organizations is that even though work time has increased with the onset of email and availability outside of work, productivity in Europe has not increased. In the UK, it's not increased. It's increased a little bit in America. Uh, but in America, it's almost a disgrace to take your holidays. I mean, uh, Rory Sutherland, uh, ad exec, um, famous ad exec, was like, he thinks it's a human rights issue, the holidaying process in America, apart from Europeans who want to go on holiday to America because the Americans are never going on holiday. They're all the beautiful places they have. That's why it's such an amazing place to travel around. Um, time and productivity. I really like the concept. When people say, well, how do you spend your time? Like, that's interesting. You are spending time. It is something you cannot control. All the rich tech billionaires, the one thing they're trying to do is elongate their lives and invest in the future and live to 130 and do all these things where they're trying to buy time, but we can't buy time. We can't buy quality years of life unless we live quality years of life, unless we move, unless we breathe, unless we connect, unless we engage with people. That can't be done. Designers are very good, I think, it, when, when it works well in collaborating with people with different perspectives and not being afraid to let an engineer talk to an industrial designer, to a graphic designer, to a filmmaker or a researcher or a semiotician, because then you start in connecting and seeing the world from different people's perspectives and trust. You have to trust people to be vulnerable in relation to that, to share 
and say, well, I see it this way. And they say, well, that's interesting. And I see it that way. And I think actually done well, design can create amazing new opportunities by that. Now, often it's put very much within a commercial framework that is, where is the ROI? Where is the ROI? What does deliver the bottom line? Throughout my career, there's been a lot of conversation with, does design have a seat at the top table? Which it never has. I mean, Johnny Ive now recently has left Apple. There's no such thing as a chief design officer at Apple anymore. It is someone who's on the engineering branch working up to the chief commercial officer, working into the CEO. So an engineers are very much about delivery, jobs to be done, process and practice, but a slightly different mindset to a more, perhaps they may disagree, but a slightly different alternative mindset to the to, to design in that role. So I think we've we've design hasn't won the how to focus on different things in the world of business. We're still capitalists, we're still looking at production, etc. On a micro level, it certainly has given people the capability to listen, to observe, to hear, to reflect, and to design new futures. I would want to take those bits into my everyday life as a non-design thing and say, well, if I've got a challenge that could be my life challenge, get the perspective of different individuals to help me journey on that. Like, speak to a coach, speak to a digital marketing specialist, speak to a researcher, speak to your friend who's a teacher, learn off what all these other people do, because they could potentially help you find the answer to your challenge by looking through different frames of reference, which I guess is effectively something we could take from design, from design thinking and put it into our world. Again, looking into what we've talked about, about the build of the workday, the build of the challenge, the, the framing of the problem, the looking at it as, as a business canvas problem, as a value proposition problem, as an opportunity, not necessarily a problem. But, how, but you need time to do that. And that time needs deep work, deep thinking. If my phone was going off here while we're talking, or we were getting a WhatsApp coming in, or I was getting emails, we wouldn't be able to dive in and think deeply. Deep work needs to be carved out for that space to do deep work and shallow work, like emails and those things need to be done in a separate, separate way. So build the space in your chunk, in your diary, in your life, and be very protective over those things. When is your time to reflect? Because if you don't plan your life, someone else will plan it for you. Something I come across with people who had this very need of managing their time better, trying to work on their productivity, and, and of course, all the way feeling better and reducing the, the stress levels, is looking at the, the biorhythms of you, of you, certainly if you're a founder and if you're a leader. And by biorhythms, I mean your natural circadian rhythms. Now, if you don't know what that is, I'll explain briefly. We, we sleep for what, roughly eight hours a night. We get hungry. We know these natural processes. Every cell in the body has a clock, so to speak. We get, if we are, you know, let's say we get up in the morning, get natural light in our eyes in the first hour and a half of, of sunrise, switches on the, um, the pulse, the cortisol pulse in the brain. Everything comes online, all the right hormones. Now, for most people, there's a curve in the day, which is somewhere in the morning, you have peak cortisol. Cortisol is not a bad thing, by the way. It's a sharpening hormone. It's, there are no bad hormones. There's just a bad lifestyle. <laughs> so if we can work the lifestyle to work with the hormones, it's much more, much easier, much more effective. So we're looking at the biorhythms, such as if you've got a sharper mental focus between 10.30 and 12, and you're a little bit of a down regulation. You're going to parasympathetic nervous system or rest and digest after lunch. And then you might have a lift again somewhere else in the day. 
if this is mapped really well, and it's quite simple, you can do it with pen and paper, an app, there's, there's apps that do this, but watching when you're mentally sharp, when you are creative, when you feel fatigued, when you feel um, thoughtful, if you can align these natural bio states of you, the human, in line with your design, really good things happen. And, and I've seen it go catastrophically wrong when people have done uh, emails and checking calls first thing in the morning. They should be doing deep work. They should be using that cortisol, that mental focus, low cognitive load to absolutely double down and protect that time. And I'm, I'm wondering how might you see designing, let's say, uh, a leader's day using some of these understandings from from your perspective as well to to really get the best out of things well i think in terms of work is really interesting that point right so a couple of things one is that we now have the tools of understanding of knowledge workers that we don't have to live the industrial life that's become from victorian times right we're not we don't live in factories we don't have to work in factories from a set time to a clock off time we understand that people's as you say people's individual circadian rhythms change from person to person and that we should be doing certain things at certain times to get the most out of our day. Often knowledge worker settings, even if you're working in a call centre, there are times of a day that you can still claim back to be your own. So you could, you might be able not, you might not be able to redesign all of it. You might be front of house at a restaurant, but there'll be other times when you will have blocks when you can be doing work and building your day differently. So I think number one is look for those spaces when you can design in space to do the right time, the right place for the right people. Now, also, if you're a leader in that space, when I believe what we should be looking at is when is the best to communicate to individuals when they are the most receptive to take on different kinds of work or messaging, etc. I'm really interested in the moment with, with the slow the fork down piece of this concept of reclaiming lunch hour, which is when do people actually have lunch hour? Do they have lunch hour? Do they eat a snack, the computer? Um, do they not eat at all? Do they eat later? Is it three o'clock? Is it one o'clock? Because I'm pretty damn sure it's not all at 12 o'clock to one. And so that experiment is revealing people's different abilities to respond and react to the world, the, the work structure that has now in many ways post-pandemic been thrown up in the air. People have gone on the great resignation. People have decided they want to work differently. They've rejected the commute. We're, not, we're now going back into the office in certain ways, uh, but not the same way as it was before. Jobs are different and large organisations, good organisations, and a lot of the work the guys at Lloyds Bank are doing in this space, particularly interesting, uh, is redesigning people's everyday life in the workspace to fit with a better, healthier, more resilient workforce. Because I think actually, in the end, it only benefits the business. Sometimes people assume it's like, well, it has to be one thing or the other, or every individual is different. But there's probably going to be clusters of people who've got, like you say, different preferences and different night owl, morning morning risers. And you can, you can actually apply a more intelligent job design system to fit to get the most out of your workers if you start leaning in and listening to their individual, giving them flexibility over their individual capabilities and not enforce them into certain other ways. It feels like kind of personalized design to me, which is, of course, uh, where, where a lot of things could go. Something I want to add to this time, and you mentioned about spending time. And then if we, we couple it with its sibling attention, which we use the term pay attention, and it's always fascinated me this, that time and attention, in my view, go hand in hand. You, you can't have one without the other, and you get the same amount 
hopefully gifted every day, 24 hours of those to spend. And what do you do with that time and that attention? Of course, we spoke about how can we bend time, utilize time, make the best of it. But I think there's an opportunity to look at the, the sibling, the other side of time and what it's connected to, which is attention. Because if your attention is scattered, for instance, you are and doing some deep work and your phone's in the background, your peripheral vision, there's a, a message comes through. All these things start to detract and your attention is scattered. And there's an old piece of research, which I'll have to dig deep and find where it comes from, done a way back, which looked at how many things we can hold in our attention at any one time. And it was, I think, seven pieces of data, plus or minus two. Apparently, some people have been doing this again, and it's gone significantly down since our current era of social media and digital tech. But essentially, the, the takeaway is that we can't hold that many things in mind at once. And a little like the sort of torch analogy, you could focus your torch beam on one thing and get a laser focus super bright. Or you can get super diffuse and see lots of bits and pieces, but not really focus down. The human brain hasn't really changed in thousands and thousands of years. So it's not going to suddenly catch up with this scattered attention approach that we've got. So managing your attention I wonder, and certainly for me, I think it's absolutely vital that how you manage attention, where you place it, how boundary that is, is going to really capitalize on how you experience time. And I wonder what's, what kind of input have you had on attention focus and, and how that might apply? Maybe just thinking of lots of the negatives in a way, which is partly we used to have, did we used to give 12 seconds towards a piece of media in terms of attention? Now it's six seconds. So with TikTok and those things are, and Snapchat, we, our attention, our goldfish-like attention is so much more limited because we've created interaction paradigms where you can flick things through things. And if you've not got a message in the first second or two, people just go past. So we are becoming scatter brained in that lack of ability to attend to things looking for immediate hits which is affecting how everything is communicating how everything is designed to advertise it affects the complexity of messages people will or will not take in it therefore reflects on the level of depth people are willing to go to to challenge and to understand things and and on and on and on and i think for me that's deeply problematic we're moving into, we're designing a world where AI will take over a lot of tasks and often give us maybe, a, I think maybe might give us back a bit more time. It might enable us to put stuff in and to see what comes out and have time to reflect. There's my white mirror. Now, the black mirror is that we'll just feed into these systems and the systems will make up their own decisions. A little bit like I used to work for Mercedes-Benz on some of their work and their Mercedes-Benz cars you used to be able to go in in the olden days and go in and fix things in cars and look at them and understand my, one of my brothers is a mechanic. And so it was all about the mecha- mechanical work of design. And then they started putting over plastic, beautiful plastic design to enclose you and keep you out of the engine. And then you plug in a star machine to give a reader of where the sensors say there's a problem in the car. Now that keeps you out of being able to fix it yourself. And it makes it very, you, you then have to go to a garage and the garage spends a lot of money. Oh, and you charge you a lot of money for the servicing, and the servicing that's made is often the thing that makes the most money within within that system. So it makes a lot of sense in a capitalistic sense, and it makes a lot of sense in an ease of use sense. Now, if we take that same thing, we put things into AI. They're effectively AI is effectively that new plastic covering. The information will come back to you, but you might not understand where it's come from. Now, will that enable us 
to have more time to attend to things in a more rich way because we've got an assistant creating stuff for us or will it just take our attention away and we'll go back to an even smaller piece of attention without any real cognitive process of thinking of what's the mechanism behind why we're doing things who knows but it's coming very very quickly and it's coming this year and next year and i know a lot of people are looking at their business models say how can we work with ai we within a number of very recent years will will be in a world where even more immediacy is expected in terms of speed of solutions supported by this quantum t-dimensional expansion on computing power which isn't just a plus b plus c but it is it is as it says it is quantum in its in its in its delivery i think that could offer amazing leaps forward it could make the demands on our attention even more challenging such an interesting such an interesting time it's coming up i play with ai and i can i can see some of its limited potential from my my sort of small view so far and it's fascinating it kind of leads me to think i've had the fortune of um being involved in philosophy for many years yoga um looking at different arts from the east the ancient arts and you know it's not a new phenomenon for having a scattered mind the old age uh, the yoga masters used to talk about the monkey mind where the monkey be jumping from tree to tree and just like the mind does what what we call associative thinking it jumps on one thought or another thought it's a natural mind state unless the mind is trained and i find it so curious that we can you can learn a you can get a a degree in anything you can learn lots of things to say and it's just wonderful i love learning who who on earth is teaching us how the how we actually focus attention now i know a, a buddy of mine is a martial arts specialist they're all about attention mental focus yoga mental focus there's zen mental focus i wonder if there's not a bigger need for this the ability to control one's focus use the ai so it becomes this both and principle about how we go forwards because if we don't use the natural AI, the internal intelligence, whatever that is for us, combined with our computing skills and, and all that wonderful stuff, are we simply going to go faster and faster into a headlong rush of chaos? Uh, and, and essentially, we won't be saving any time because we're filling it with thoughts. We'll be more stressed and we won't actually be really effective. I think if one were an investor... Investing in mental health over the past 10 years would be a very wise move, right? We've not moved towards a calmer, less mentally challenged world. We've moved to a world of certainly more diagnosed mental health problems. And of course, we've had a huge pandemic in the middle of that. And we've come out of the back of that with a, with a, a tsunami of issues in relation to how we struggle the brain to deal with this acceleration. AI adds to that acceleration. Quantum adds to that acceleration at a speed that the, the brain I don't is not physiologically built to deal with. And so we have to build in we I we have to design it to support human interfaces, to be humanized, not to accelerate and push us further and further and further. And it has the capability to deliver this in the background, a perfect concierge that does things for you and that gives things you when you need them and takes them away and gives them, oh, look, I've got more space and more time to reflect, to really deep thinkly, deep, 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 think deeply. It's a, it's a partner of mine. Uh, equally, it's a runaway train. And we've already been on the runaway trains that haven't led to an increased productivity. Is this just another runaway train that will lead to, a, again, a lack of increased productivity? 
where else is it going? I, I really don't know. Uh, I and I oscillate positive, negative, positive, negative, just like a battery, I guess. At times, it's a it's a fascinating thing. But design has a role in the. I often see design as the nib of a pen where the ink touches the paper. That's the bit that designers do. They create the thing that the human interfaces with that's, that's behind the business, that's behind the product, that's behind the service. How we design that when that ink touches the paper for AI is critical. And they need to be humanizing and being human-centered in relation to the delivery of this technology more than any other because of its potential challenges to our human ability to perceive and react and respond and have our parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems anywhere near the same level of balance and coordination and coherence. Really nice. Thank you. To summarize, some of the, I've heard so many inspiring things. Uh, you've got a huge wealth of knowledge, but for some really clear takeaways, I'd, I'd love you to share a couple of things that our listeners might be able to take from this conversation, take this, this intelligence and, and integrate it into their own practices. You cover many points from designing the day, working with biorhythms, looking at how you can change your perception on design and apply it to all sorts of things. I wonder if you could share with us a few things that would be really, certainly in your experience of how it practically can make it to gate stress. Well, connection with people in the real world is so important, right? When we, the evidence is that when you're doing something, if you have connection with the, who you, the output of what impact it's going to make, if you're fundraising and it's for college kids to go to college, if you meet that college kid, you, your productivity increases massively. All the design research journeys that I went on from Nokia into the Chinese villages and cities of Chengdu and for into the into Florinopolis in Brazil, into operating theatres of New York, going with people to see what actually happens to people and how they respond in the real world is the golden point of my career. It's like go and understand, walk in the shoes of others, empathize, understand see what you're doing and hopefully see what output can deliver. It will motivate you, inspire you, energize you because you'll be doing it for a reason. And I think it made the difference to every client I've worked with, every designer and partner I've worked with, it gives the most validity. So in terms of connection, people to people matter, right? People to meet all in the real world matter. The things that we do and we gain that aren't just conversational, there's all the other non-verbal, all the environmental, all the contextual stuff, get out there see people, get into the real world and experience what you're delivering and be kind to yourself, right? Be good to yourself. You, these are the good old days. Look after yourself where you are now. Don't worry about tomorrow in the same way. Focus in and understand the little things you can do today for people. That's a big first part for me. Then we go to the other end, which is time and designing your day. Deep work, light work, super important, right? Respect yourself, respect your calendar, respect your time. It's your life. Design it the way you can, as much as you can within the constraints of what you actually do. This will give you the perception of control and those modes that can take you between one action and another action based on where we are physiologically, our cells, the cortisol levels, etc. But also the, the, the promise of opportunities in life to be more creative and not just accept the status quo, do that too. And then in relation to stress, those two things come together, right? We are all surrounded by stressors. Stress is how we respond to those stressors, right? 
eustress and distress. Like, how do we keep things in the good side of stress, eustress, and not tip into distress? And I think that's kind of a combination of all the above things. Job design for the next generation of individuals is has the capability to not just be broadcast, do some counselling, hear some uh, mindfulness, etc., and not so constraining to be I clock in and clock out of my work, but also inbound information. We have wearables that we wear that give us an understanding of our heart rate, sometimes a little bit too much, sometimes not enough. We have the capacity to nudge ourselves and support ourselves to make tiny habit changes in our lives. Um, let's recognise stressors and let's take our individual approaches to make sure that we are in flow more than balance at the right time in our day. Don't think everything is bad in terms of stress or everything is good in terms of stress, but map out your day and see where those stresses fit in relation to your calendar and try and use some of the tools that we've talked about to design them out. And they can go on that design thinking course if they fancy for free off my website. (laughs) It's a good in as a way to start doing those reflections to look at themselves and say, what is it about my life and my day that I could deliver differently, design different. Thank you. Yes, all information will be in the show notes. Those of you who want to learn more about Matt and Matt's course, um, heartily recommend you get in, uh, have a look at the show notes and check the links for more details. Wow. You are a font of knowledge. You've had a, a vast uh, world experience in many things. We could talk about so much more. I know we you could. and I have spoken already about different fields, but in terms of design and applying it to our lives, individuals, organizational groups it seems so vital in a world that feels like it's kind of chaotic and that design principle all the way through thank you so much for sharing all your thoughts all your knowledge i trust dear listener that you'll be able to apply at least something from this call today and as always if you are interested in letting us know um reach out you can reach us on the podcast page and you can share your thoughts i always love to hear what you're thinking and i'll See you on the next one. Matt, thank you. Dear listener, thank you. We'll speak to you again. Thanks. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe. And if a friend would benefit from hearing this, do send it on to them as well. If you would like to get in touch yourself, then you can go to my website, which is saljeffries.com, spelled S-A-L-J-E-F-F, E-R-I-E-S, saljeffries.com. Hit the get in touch link and there you can send me a direct message. If you'd like to go one step further and learn whether coaching could help you overcome a challenge or a block in your life, then do reach out and I offer a call where we can discuss how this may be able to help you. Until the next time, take care.